0: Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is Ava Anson and I'm a science writer and science communicator. Today I am pleased to bring you a conversation on the topic of non-small cell lung carcinoma. This podcast has been sponsored by Kiagen. Joining me for today's podcast are two experts in the field who will offer their perspectives on the current landscape of lung cancer treatments, specifically non-small cell lung carcinoma. Our first guest is Colin Lindsay. He's clinical senior lecturer and honorary consultant in thoracic medical oncology at the Christie in Manchester, where he oversees treatment for lung cancer patients and leads clinical trials. He is also focused on researching new lung cancer treatments and biomarkers. We're also joined by Terry Connoran, patient advocate and founder of KRAS Kickers. When she learned that her lung cancer was caused by a mutation in the gene KRAS, Terry founded the patient organization KRAS Kickers to connect with others in a similar situation. She actively follows the latest development in lung cancer research and uses her platform to give a voice to lung cancer patients. In our discussion today, we will hear different perspectives on some of the challenges and successes in diagnosis and treatment of non-small cell lung carcinoma. We'll also look at how lung cancer treatment and diagnosis are changing and what to expect in the future. So first of all thanks for joining me today Terry and Colin and I think we should start with a little bit of background. Um, So Colin could you give us a quick overview of non-small cell lung carcinoma? Uh,
1: Of course and uh, thanks Eva for for the introduction and, and the invitation to be here along with Terry. Um, so, non small cell lung cancer is the commonest histological um, type of lung cancer and it affects 80 to 90% of cases. I think it's important to point out that lung cancer we still need to do much, much better with in general. It usually presents in its later stages. Its outcomes have been historically poor. It's one of the three top cancers in terms of incidence, but it's easily the first cause of cancer mortality. And for example, in the UK, it accounts for 20%, roughly 20% of cancer deaths. Um, if we break things down further, um, non small cell lung cancer is basically. A bracket for a few different histological ways that a lung cancer present can present and it it, it basically does what it says in the tin and, and, the de- and the description excludes small cell lung cancer as a possibility. Um, what non-small cell lung cancer is, is generally made up of is principally adenocarcinomas in 40 to 50 percent of cases and squamous cancers in 15 to 20 percent of cases and, and there are some rarer outliers such as large cell carcinoma that are involved in the non-small small cell bracket as well um, and and really in terms of targeted therapy progress it's predominantly in the adenocarcinoma subtypes or, or, or a slightly larger subgroup or bracket if you like the non-squamous cases that, that we've made progress.
0: Mm. And and so what treatments are currently available for these cancers?
1: Um, well I guess the first thing would be remiss not to say is that surgery and radiotherapy are still the primary treatment modalities that can offer cure uh, for non-small cell lung cancer. But um, as I mentioned already, that most of these cancers actually present in later stages where unfortunately surgery and radiotherapy are less applicable as as aggressive local treatments. Um, But Beyond that, systemic treatment options can be c- categorized broadly into historical chemotherapies that we've used. Um, then newer treatments, such as immune checkpoint inhibition, otherwise known as immunotherapy, or um, I think, what we'll come on to, which is targeted therapies, which are often tablets. And, and these are aligned, in particular, with specific molecular targets, which we identify in the cancer cell. Um, the success of immunotherapy and targeted therapy and advanced disease in the past 10 years in particular has really led to their progressive implementation into early stage disease settings now.
0: Hmm. Thanks. Yeah. And, and as you said, we'll hear a lot more about uh, targeted therapies later on in this episode. Um, so first, let's hear from Terry. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal experience since you received your diagnosis?
2: For sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here today. Anytime that a patient can kind of share their voice and their perspective, it really starts to make a difference. Um, Like anybody else, the My plan, I didn't have a plan to have a cancer diagnosis. And because I didn't have some extensive smoking history or what have you, it's not something that we were looking for on the radar. What I was looking for is um, the standard types of cancer that run in my family, colon cancer, you know, breast cancer and what have you. So I was very intentional about getting my screening, my scanning, eating healthy, doing exercise and such. So when I had a lung cancer diagnosis, it was terrifying. And all I knew about it is now I've got a clock ticking in my life. And that was the scariest part. Um, I was diagnosed and I went through what was standard, uh, standard of care treatment six and a half years ago. At that time, it was chemo and surgery and it had, had no disease, although it has come back on me five different times over the course of the past six and a half years. I currently have no evidence of disease, and it's an exciting place to be able to know that lung cancer doesn't kill people. The way it used to. And merely to hear a doctor talk about a 10 year number getting better when five years has been the standard and five years goes by in the blink of an eye.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it can really take you by surprise. Um, and then, of course, through founding KRESS Kickers, you've also connected with many other lung cancer patients. Um, And from these conversations, what, what would you say are some of the emotional and practical challenges that you often see in the community?
2: Well, KRAS Kickers is a tumor agnostic organization, and when I found out that KRAS is the most common driver in lung, colorectal, and pancreatic, I couldn't help but include everybody in that case. And so we use KRAS not just as the oncogene biomarker, but as an acronym of empowerment for our group, and that empowerment embraces knowledge and the research, and the advocacy, and you total those together, and that is about survivorship. And how we do that is as patients, we become informed about what our disease is, what it means, and what our treatment options are, and what's next. And next may be absolutely nothing. Next may just be monitoring, but also the ongoing living with the disease. And even though the disease may be gone from my body, I'm still living with that disease, okay? Whether we're talking PTSD, you're talking long-term side side effects, um, you end up with like cataracts and all sorts of physical challenges that nobody really kind of expected. And so that's the survivorship part. What the KRAS Kickers does is we embrace each other into that sense of community. And it's not crowdsourcing from from the mindset of just like what everybody's information is bringing in. We focus specifically on the research. And so when there's poster presentations, when there's world long, you know, presentations or the triple meeting or what have you, we're bringing that information in because we want to have the most current data, so we can make the best decisions for ourselves. And often, um, it's, it's not just for what I need to know right now today. That, as a patient, gives me hope for what's tomorrow. And if you feel, and I think this is such a key point, if you feel as a patient that there's no other option, this is it, it's done, you've kind of given up already and very much of learning like whether we're talking pipeline information of like drugs coming or we're talking about something that I mean realistically is not going to be here for a couple of years Mm -hmm. it still tells me y'all are working on what you're doing Mm -hmm. and I have what we call hope and when I have that hope that gives me more motivation And to have that hope and share hope with other patients that multiplies it and gives us strength and community together.
0: Yeah, yeah, that sense of community is so great. Um, So, one of the things we're talking about today is targeted treatments and how they're coming up. Do you think that, um, how do you think that targeted treatments have
2: impacted patient care? I think targeted treatments for a patient gives us a sense of like ownership as far as like I'm actually fighting the single demon that's in the body as opposed to attacking my entire body. Mm -hmm. Okay. For me to take chemo and I've been through chemo, I've been through chemo radiation and surgery as an individual patient and go through in chemo is like throwing a grenade. Okay. In my body attacking all of my body, and whether it's impacting, you know, my epitome fatigue, my hair, blah, 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 all those other things, okay? I may still have side effects from targeted therapy. I may be able to take a pill. I may be able to reduce taking, taking the medication level a little bit. Um, I may be able to actually hit that one thing, okay, that gives us that um, that a self attack, literally like a missile against the cancer, and that's a very empowering place to be. Okay, it only makes sense if you're at war, if your body's at war with cancer. And how can that not be good and better? And then you start looking at the long term side effects and what have you. There's going to be side effects because cancer and treatments have them. Mm-hmm but that gives us better opportunities to later on have the other options that we may need to circle back to.
0: Um, so in practical purposes, um, targeted treatments for lung cancer rely on biomarker testing. So Colin, can you maybe explain what biomarkers are and how they drive treatments?
1: Yeah, of course. And um, I'll, I'm sure I'll come back to KRAS, which is a topic I, I love to discuss, uh, including with Terry, but just stepping back a, a little bit. Um, a biomarker, I guess, broadly is a molecule, gene, or characteristic of a disease that will help inform your understanding of uh, sometimes its prognosis, sometimes it will be a predictive biomarker that identifies potential to respond to treatments, or if it's very good, it might be both of these things. Um, I, I guess. Again, broadly, it can be something as simple as a change in an everyday blood test or a CT response after a patient has begun treatment. But generally, the best biomarkers that can be optimized and leveraged are something that uh, can be uh, obviously be used before treatment has begun. Um, Because, of course, that allows us to better select patients who might respond to targeted treatments. Uh, and also, we can use them uh, in contrast to, to avoid unnecessary treatment in patients, unnecessary exposure of toxicity to patients who need an, an alternative treatment option. And, and really, non small cell lung cancer has been an exemplar of this approach over the past five to 10 years. Um, and from when I began, uh, and and they'll say I'm, I'm in my mid-40s, so I didn't begin that long, ag- that long ago. Um, uh, basically, we had about a one-year a- average survival to offer patients with chemotherapy. Um, and now that's really extending out towards two to three years on average but with a combination of targeted therapies and immunotherapy. So um, that's a fantastic place to be. Um, I'll maybe just finish with a couple of examples. And I think um, probably the best one to mention is EGFR mutation, which many listeners may have heard of. And uh, and the reason it's worth pointing out is that um, we initially used EGFR inhibitors um, just by giving them to all of our non-small cell lung cam- cancer patients in the second line. But we did recognize that there was a clear disparity of response between a min- minority who had excellent responses and the majority whose disease continued to grow um, and then once we recognized that EDFR mutation was really a very sensitive and specific test and reason for that that would identify our responders we were we were obviously able to stop offering futile and ultimately time wasting EDFR inhibition to patients with EGFR wild type disease um, I mean, I, I guess I'd finish just by saying, um, just introducing KRAS K- K- again, which, uh, which Terry has already done. Um, a, a, I mean, this has really been the Everest as far as many basic and translational cancer researchers are concerned. It's present in about 20% of cancer cases and prevalent um, to very difficult cancers that Terry has already mentioned. And, and it happens in about 30 to 40% of lung cancer cases. And and really, has only after forty years recently become a predictive biomarker itself for targeted treatment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so Terry, from the patient point of view, what what does biomarker identification mean um, specifically for the community? Like, just to have the option of getting a treatment option based on a biomarker, how has that changed the therapy?
2: You know, it, it doesn't make sense. That patients identify with their biomarker as though we belong to a club. But it's our sense of identity and our sense of control. And so even though, like myself, I don't I don't have a specific target therapy, I have a kRS G twelve D, which is drugs that are being studied and what have you. But um, it's my sense of camaraderie in our war cry. And so for the patients, it gives us enough information we can start looking for that sense of what I have in common with somebody else. Oh, they have EGFR. Oh, they have KRAS. Oh, they have this or that. And so it's not just that that biomarker. What does it tell the doctor? It tells the doctor what treatments are going to work. What I've learned as a patient that didn't come from a science or medical background is that KRAS has been there all along in my body. It was just part of my normal systems that went haywire. And from going haywire, now it's mutation. And that was very freeing to me as a person and and as a patient. It might have just always going to be something that I was going to get. And so it's beyond just, I need to know what the biomarker is so that I know my doctor's doing the treatment, so that I have a prognosis, so I have a diagnosis, so I can get what's next. It's a sense of identity, and I belong to a club, and this is all of us together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 Terry just mentioned her um, KRAS mutation. How, how do different KRAS mutations affect what treatments are available?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, this is now a really, really hugely popular area of cancer research and and a lot of discoveries are still being made. But ultimately, it's extremely popular because it's so important and, and much of it just now is driven by the potential to design drugs for specific RAS mutations. And although there are a few possibilities for different types of RAS point mutations, there are ultimately a finite number of them that tend to drive the majority of cancers. Um, and if people um, are listening want to try and memorise anything, maybe from the rest of the discussion, that's that the most common ones are G12D, which ter- Terry is v- affected by as a point mutation, G12V, the second most common, and then G12C. Uh, now, for that last one, G12C, that's where the first drug development um, breakthrough came from, the Shokat lab in, in, in UCSF, um, uh, and that's the third most common mutation, as I say, and it's, um, I mean, and, and we have some fortune as lung cancer oncologists because this G12C mutation was particularly prevalent in non-small cell lung cancer, and we've now seen these drugs establish a foothold in the clinic, and we expect to see an increasing quality of these drugs in the coming years. Um, Coming back to G12D, which is the most common mutation Terry is affected by, but um, many, many patients, particularly with pancreatic, colorectal and lung cancer are affected by in general, um, I have inquiries all the time from UK-based-based based, based patients who are wondering when the first drugs trials will arrive for this mutation, and and I guess I'm pleased to say that, that these drugs have been de- developed and they're currently being being looked at in in early phase clinical trials, and and I can say, you know, I can also say to UK patients specifically that I'm working on trying to bring those trials to um, uh, home so that so that patients here have access to them, um, but really to summarize the essence of this is that we have transformed our clinical understanding from this simplistic notion where we were always previous looking at KRAS mutation yes or no in a cancer. Um, now I think many clinicians realize that to tackle KRAS, which has been such a difficult problem to address, we need to consider it at the level of its individual point mutations.
0: Thanks. Yeah, that's some good news there. (laughs) Um, Let's talk a bit about the practicalities of diagnostics. Um, Colin, what methods are usually used to identify biomarkers in preparation of a treatment strategy?
1: Yeah, um, I'll probably just come back initially to uh, what I mentioned before, which (laughs) is that non-small cell is the exemplar cancer really as far as biomarker development and associated paired targeted treatment breakthroughs has been concerned. Um, Methods used can be a combination of uh, next generation sequencing, single gene tests such as PCR, um, RNA panel sequencing and traditional methods such as immunohistochemistry and FISH um, uh, using histological survey. Um, the main challenges we have are probably twofold, which are uh, first of all, we need to make sure we have enough cancer tissue to perform all of these tests and all of the profiling that we would like to do. and, and, and that's not necess- that's easier said than done because we're in an age where small biopsies are increasingly popular to make quicker diagnoses. Um, the second main challenge is really making sure that international healthcare systems, are resourced and ready to implement new biomarkers and their associated treatments. Um, where tissue is difficult to obtain, um, we have the potential to leverage um, liquid biopsy for certain molecular tests. For instance, it's approved to identify EGFR mutations in, in the UK. Um, liquid biopsy has also been u- used to monitor response. To treatments in countries such as the US, where you can see levels of different mutations go up and down with treatment and potentially earlier than CT identify early resistance. Um, I guess the last thing to say is that one thing we have used to guide patterns and implementation of biomarker testing in the past has been. Clinical information, um, but um, locally we're trying to move away from this to reflex testing of all um, uh, uh, non-squamous lung cancer cases, and and there's probably a couple of reasons for that. First of all, in and, and pressured healthcare systems, clinical information getting to the pathologists is often of poor quality and it's very difficult to improve that working across multiple hospitals. Um the 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 other thing to say is that there are always outliers in clinical information and I know I know from speaking to Terry in the past for instance that KRAS is associated with smoking but we do have never smokers such as Terry who are affected by KRAS mutation. So clinical uh, information as a guide for molecular profiling will only take you so far and I think we should be doing it in a reflex way as much as possible
0: and and terry have you um heard anything from the patient community about um newer methods like liquid biopsies how is that perceived by patients
2: oh easier is better and and faster is even better yet (laughs) Um, and so whatever it takes to get that biomarker information i i think one of the the problems is walking in to To any sort of a diagnosis, right? It's not like I, ha- I studied this. I had no idea what I was walking into, what I needed to know. And so as a patient, I am leaning heavily on my oncologist, on my team, to give me the guidance that it is that I need. And when we start hearing about biomarkers at whatever point in our journey as a patient, that's when we'll, we may circle back and say, then it's now we've got enough context that we might be able to pose the question to the doctor. And sadly, we don't always get the information that we need. Um, and we just hope that they have the information they need. But can can I just can I make a point about the the biomarkers that I think is as a patient say we don't know this, okay? And I didn't know that um so often we as patients think we've got a really bad doctor because we don't get a biomarker result. And that's not always the case they may not have all the actual tissue that they need to get. It could just be the goopy part of our body as opposed to like the cancer part of the body that's going to provide that information. And we we don't mean to get so angry and frustrated with you as doctors. However, we don't have that explained to us up front. And I think that kind of preventative um, leading okay, that kind of guidance can really go a long ways is that we're going to be doing this testing and hopefully we'll be able to get a good piece of information from it. And one of my the best examples I've got of how to explain biomarker testing to a patient and help us um, garner a little bit of forgiveness when the test results don't come back. Like, we, like there's just not information there. It's like trying to test a blueberry muffin and you're taking this zitsy bitsy teeny tiny needle and sticking it inside of this muffin, and you may get 100% blueberry. You may be able to tell that there's blueberry in there, okay? You may actually hit a spot where there's no blueberries or no anything. You just know you've got muffin, okay? And we don't realize that that's really what it is that you're testing and the information that you're trying to get. And so please give us the information up front, help mitigate the problem, and let us understand and hand us a blueberry muffin and tell us to try and get a, t- a good test out of it based on one of those little needles and we'll <laughs> have a much better understanding.
0: Thanks. Yeah, that's a good analogy too. Um, I've got a quick question for Colin. So one term that people might have come across is companion diagnostics. Can you explain that a bit? When does biomarker detection become companion diagnostic?
1: Yeah, I, I mean it's it's probably a relatively straightforward and quick answer as, as well. Um, I, by the way, I like the blueberry muffin analogy too. Although I do want to keep it, um, a, a biomarker tends to uh, to become a companion diagnostic as I see it when a positive clinical trial result offers leverage to use a, a, to use a drug that is linked to that biomarker. Um, so so must. Commonly, the biomarker will predict predict efficacy uh, rather than lack of it. Um, But they could be negative biomarkers of response, or or, you know, in in rarer cases, biomarkers could potentially be used to predict toxicity as well. Um, I I guess most common examples in in non-small cell lung cancer, PD-L1 immunohistochemistry for immunotherapy, um, EGFR mutation for EGFR inhibitors, and and now KRAS G12C testing for various KRAS G12C inhibitors. Um, But I I guess probably the most important point to make about this is, is that there's a huge, huge number of putative biomarkers that are not justified for the clinic to become companion diagnostics, and um, I, I don't know if this is a misperception, misperspec- but um, our problem has never been a lack of biomarkers; it's that we've always been be, we, we've been unable to progress them all through to clinical validation and, and utility, and, and a clinical trial is often a, a key way to do this.
0: Thanks. Yeah, so we're, we're getting close to the end of our discussion. But before we stop, um, I just want to sort of summarize. So we've in our discussion so far, we've heard that there have been many different aspects to bio- biomarker based treatment for lung cancer. And there's the scientific side, the clinical side, there's technical aspects, and of course, the patient angle. So I would like to hear from both of you how you think people coming from these different areas can better collaborate to ultimately improve lung cancer treatment. Um, So starting with Colin, um, can you maybe discuss how clinicians, biopharma and diagnostic companies can work together?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, I've been thinking in particular about RADS precision medicine for, for the past five to six years now. Uh, and this job has really matured and and, and developed m- my understanding of the challenge and and really the critical need for everyone to work together in synergy. And that comes from a background I come from Scotland, where to be honest, everyone tends to be suspicious of business interests and money. Uh, and I was raised for a life of service to others. But I have to say that increasing uh, dialogue with every different member of the RAS community has really reinforced a feeling in me that i've developed that we can't move things forward with the input of one discipline alone and everyone needs to pull in the same direction whether that be pharma uh, diagnostic companies scientists patients and clinicians and it's only really with this organized approach um, that we've been able to fuel success for RAS and hopefully we'll continue to do so in the future. And I think probably that's a call out to, to pressure. I, 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 sorry, I just kind of want to um, highlight there's there's so many pressured clinicians out there who find the prospect of this hard to engage with. And I do, I do acknowledge that I'm in a relatively privileged position where I have dedicated research time in order to be able to help help drive some of that.
0: And Terry, we already talked a little bit about um, the communication between patients and clinicians. Um, How would you say, um, are there ways that patients can get more involved? And and why is it important for patients to have an active role in their treatment decisions? Everybody
2: says that they're patient-centric. But really, you don't need a treatment without a patient. And so it really needs to be more about patient inclusion. And whether, you know, I I grew up in a capitalist society. I believe that patients have motivation for the drugs to work that far exceed the pharmaceutical company's motivation. Doctors want to be heroes. Patients want to live. Family members want their patient to live. We all have the same goal. It may look different, but if we're bringing all those things together in a collaborative way um, and look at the, the potential costs, the absolute benefits, we'll be able to put our money where our mouth is, and we'll be able to live longer and truly kick cancers gay ass. Thanks so much. Um, So that
0: brings us um, to the end of our conversation. Now, it's very clear from our discussion today that treating lung cancer really is a very collaborative effort. So I'm glad we have been able to discuss both the clinical and the patient side of it. Um, To our listeners, I'd also like to recommend to reach out to others within the non-small cell lung cancer community, share your knowledge and viewpoints and get support where you need it. And that concludes today's discussion. I would like to thank our guests, Terry Conneran and Colin Lindsay, for joining us today to share their insights on new treatments for non-small cell lung carcinoma with our audience. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can tune in to more EMJ podcasts through your preferred podcast platform or by visiting emjreviews.com. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now.